The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And our text today brings us face-to-face with a sober, recurring theme of the Holy Scriptures. I'd like to read to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 6 through 9. And here the Apostle Paul is speaking to persecuted Christians. And he says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now, in these past few months, we've been studying the second coming of Christ in relation to the Thessalonian church and their encouragement by the Apostle Paul in the midst of their persecution. Now, he tells them in the fifth verse of this chapter that that God uses their afflictions, that is, he uses their sufferings to prove them worthy of his kingdom and, in effect, to strengthen them and to help build their endurance. And the apostle assures them that although God uses persecutors, and he does that for his divine purposes, it's not a sign that any of these that God uses will escape the consequences of actions against his people. In the sixth verse, he writes that it's righteous for God to repay those that trouble his people. It's just for God to pass judgment on those who sin against him by harming his people. And then in the 8th and ninth verses, the apostle declares that God will have vengeance on unbelievers that don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says they will be punished with everlasting destruction when Christ returns from heaven with his army of mighty angels. Now today I'd like for us to consider just this phrase that we, that we see here uh, in this text, everlasting destruction. When Christ returns with his army of angels, there will be everlasting destruction, punished with everlasting destruction. And I want to discuss with you the meaning and the intent of what God plans for those who remain in unbelief apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the prospects of this are grave. They are frightening. It's the reason that we urgently impress on people the need to come to Jesus Christ in repentant faith. Now, I said our subject is a recurring theme, and I can give you many examples of that, and I will in the course of the message. But first, I'd like for us to, or I'd like to to mention another place where God, where Paul speaks of the destruction of the wicked, and this is in Romans chapter 9. And I'm breaking into to Paul's thought here about the sovereignty of God, and he mentions the purpose that God allowed sin to enter his creation. In Romans 9, verse number 22, What if God, 
willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Why did God allow sin to enter his creation? Well, it was to demonstrate his attribute of wrath and to make his power known. Now, there are many difficult theological arguments in Romans that we can't approach today, but I would like you to see this, that we may think that God is too long in taking vengeance and he endures with too much patience those that afflict his people. But we are assured in the scriptures that most certainly God will take care of us. He will avenge his children and there are people that are fitted, they are prepared for destruction. And what God does, he just waits them out, he endures them to show his power over them. Now, everlasting destruction is our theme and the place of everlasting destruction is an awful burning lake of fire. Jesus taught the existence of it in one of many places. He said in Luke chapter 12, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. I believe those verses fit our text verses. Some of the Thessalonians, thousands of first century Christians and Christians in later centuries were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were tortured by persecutors. Their lives were taken. But Jesus said, you don't need to fear them. You don't need to fear those who can only kill your body. You must fear the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's a warning shot that's fired across the bow of every person that rejects Christ, that refused to come to him in faith. Hell is the place where unbelievers will face everlasting destruction. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says that God is a God of wrath. Christians who understand that, Christians who come to faith in Jesus Christ are molded by this knowledge. And our position changes on such things as this. We are, our purpose in life is redirected. So what faithful Christians will do is to dedicate themselves to warning people about this awful place called hell. You are saved. You realize what God did for you when you receive Christ as your Savior. And since you have that information, the godly Christian will want to tell others what they've learned and will want to help them to avoid the awful prospects of dying without Christ. When a person dies without Christ, there is no hope. There is no second chance because hell is a place of everlasting destruction. Each person faces God's wrath and must be saved from it. Every person is a guilty sinner. Both Old and New Testaments say that there are none who seek God all have gone in the way of wickedness. So there is this impending danger, and the meaning of salvation is precisely this. It is to be saved from God's wrath and to be delivered from condemning judgment. And when preachers won't preach sin and hell, neither can they preach salvation. Because salvation is to be saved from something, and this is what it is. It's to be saved from the wrath of God in everlasting destruction. Now, today I want to give you some facts about this awful place called hell. I want to ask and answer questions that are often asked about it. 
And the answers to these questions will help us to get a biblical understanding of this terrible place. Now, as I said, no one, no one in the congregation this morning raised your hand and said that you were going to hell. And we are so thankful for that. But these are questions that you need to know and they will be helpful for you when you talk to other people about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the first question is, why does hell exist? Why does it exist? Why would God create a place called hell? Well, you can't determine the truth by taking a poll. But if we were to take a survey of people and ask them, why is there a hell? Many would say, well, God is the cause of it. They don't like God. They don't like this doctrine called hell. They're angry at God and this doctrine because he created this awful place. I don't really need to argue with anyone about who created hell and the original purpose of it because the Bible is clear on that point. The scripture says that hell was originally prepared for Satan and his fallen angels. And so God created hell as a place where he would put these fallen angels who rebelled against him. There isn't anything that's in God that makes hell necessary except his attribute of justice. And as justice said, hell must be created not because of his fault, but because of the sins of others. See, there isn't an action that God takes that makes hell necessary. Hell exists because of the actions of those that he created. Now, as it concerns man, if there wasn't the first sin, then there would never be a hell for people. Evil angels could have it all to themselves. There would be no need of punishment. And that first sin, as all sin is, was caused by man's activity. The first sin that was committed by man was caused by, of course, his activity. And, folks, you might mark this down. It was caused by man's free will. Now, there are many people who love to argue the issue of free will. And they're very upset if you teach that God's activity surpasses man's free will. But if salvation was left to free will alone, every single person would die and go to hell because it was free will that led man into the first sin. Adam was created in innocence. He didn't have a sinful nature. And by his free will, he chose to sin. And so everyone that's born since then, since Adam, has this sinful nature. So what do you think they're going to do with their free will? It always causes them to choose sin. Never is our will the cause of choosing Christ. Not until God has come to us and worked on that will and regenerated us can we choose Christ because our will is always bent towards sin. We will always choose against Christ. Now the fact is also true that after man sinned, God provided redemption for sin. And if every person repented of their sins and turned to God, there still wouldn't be a necessity for hell Hell exists, though, because there have always been people who will not repent. They will not obey the gospel of Christ. And the world is full of those kinds of people. You have confessed today that none of those people are in here. And again, we're thankful to God for that. But as we preach this message, you would do very well to examine your own heart and examine, are you seeking the holiness of God found in his righteousness? Or are you not a true believer in Jesus Christ? That's a very important question for you to answer. So God provided a way that no one should need to be punished. 
Our verses say there's destruction for those who don't obey the gospel of Christ. And if you want to make that simple, if you want me to, if, if you've not trusted Christ, then you could say you would be part of the reason there is a hell. Hell exists because of what we do, not because of God. So God provided a way that no one should be punished. He provided Christ as a sacrifice for sin, as a payment for sin. And it's only because of our stubbornness and refusal to repent does hell exist. The scripture says that God is merciful. He is gracious. In his own words, he says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin. God is willing to forgive. He's always willing to forgive and settle this issue. But people won't repent of their sins. God provided redemption so that people don't need to go to hell. But his mercy and grace are refused. Hell exists because of us, not because of God. Now question number two, what is the purpose of hell? Well, the purpose of hell is punishment. The intended design is punishment. And hell must be everlasting because its purpose is not to reform people. God doesn't put anyone in hell as remedial punishment. The way that people are improved is by redemption, not by punishment. Now, if we could be improved by punishment, redemption isn't needed. Christ could have been spared if punishment would simply do the trick of being what God wants us to be. God would say, well, you won't repent of your sins, you won't believe, so instead I'm going to punish you to such an extent that all of your sins will be paid for. Well, if God used punishment to improve us, then punishment turns out to be more effective than redemption. Because then everybody, without exception, would be saved because God would punish you enough. Christ wouldn't be needed. He wouldn't need to die if punishment could save us. Now, did you know that all systems of justice are, are based in the biblical model? Crimes against people and crimes against the state are punished for the good order of society. Lawlessness and recklessness and freedom from punishment when crimes are committed couldn't be entertained by our judges, much less by the holy and righteous creator of this universe, the only truly righteous judge. And so why would we think that it's strange that, that God would act according to his own model? Why would we think that God would do less than punish crime when we never permit our judges to do less? And we would be literally incensed if, if the judges that sat in our courtrooms just took the murder, turned him loose, put him out on the streets in our neighborhoods again. We would never stand for that. And God will neither. God is not going to let sin go unpunished. And he couldn't be perfectly righteous if he did. He intends to create a new heavens and a new earth, and there will never be any more sin there. And to make it that way, God must get rid of all offenders. The ones who survive his wrath are the ones who obey the gospel of Jesus Christ by believing that Christ paid for all the transgressions against him. Christ is the only one who can satisfy sins against an infinite God. Now, if I said, if punishment is unnecessary, if it's wrong for God to punish infinitely, then there is no need for the sacrifice of Christ. Without a real hell, 
the Bible's most significant doctrine and the one that the entire scriptures are spent developing would be a moot point, and that is the doctrine of redemption. It's the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the satisfaction of God's righteous judgment. And so if our punishment was enough or if it wasn't needed, then crimes against God would be barely more than indiscretions against men. In other words, what we could do with sin is just settle it in our own courts of law. Set up our system, talk about what people have done wrong, give them the penalty, pass it out, and it all ends here in this life and we never worry about what happens afterwards. But the scripture teaches that sins against people are also sins against the infinite God. Now, one, one example of this is David's sin against Uriah. You know the story very well, how that David stole Uriah's wife and committed adultery with her. And then he sinned even more against Uriah because he took his life. Now, in our courts of law, there's a penalty that can satisfy that. We have a penalty for it. The law says a life is forfeited for a life. And we can't do anything more than that. We can't do anything more beyond imposing the death penalty. And when the death sentence is given, we all say justice has been served. The penalty has been paid. But we notice that when David was confronted by Nathan the prophet and he acknowledged his sin, this is what he said to God in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against thee, speaking to God, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. David very well knew that the greater sin was not what he did against Uriah. The great sin was what he did against God. And if we say that David's sin against God could be satisfied with some sort of finite punishment as we have in our courts of law, then God stands in the same relationship to David as Uriah. But David knew that wasn't true. There was... The reason that he needed to be repentant and concerned about his great sin, it is this. It is against God. And I'm afraid that this is what people fail to recognize today, how terrible that sin is because it is against God, the holy and the righteous God. God is infinite and sins against him can only be satisfied by infinite punishment. Now the fact that God became man and paid such an astounding price to remove sin is one of the greatest arguments for eternal punishment. Hell couldn't be annihilation because finite punishment devalues the blood of Christ. It devalues the suffering of Christ. If hell isn't everlasting, then Christ's suffering was not infinite. So eternal eternal. Suffering establishes this extreme difference between our nature and God's nature. I mean, even when we go to heaven, there will never, it'll never in all eternity, will we become exactly like God. We can't become God. That's the extreme difference between our natures. Now, our third question then inevitably follows, and that is, when does hell end? When does it end? Or why doesn't it end? Why? Well, because when a person dies and goes to hell... He never stops being a sinner. He never stops being guilty of sin. Now, for a person to go to heaven, the guilt of sin must be removed. Now, transgressions, of course, those need to be paid for, no matter how many there are. And even one sin makes a person guilty forever. Because once a sin is committed, a person 
and a crime is committed, a person is never not guilty of that crime. Now, if you go to prison for a few months or a few years, or even if you go to prison for your entire life, punishment does not take away guilt. Uh, A prison term might satisfy man's penalty, but the guilt still remains. Now, with the sinner, God provided a way that even his guilt could be taken away. By the sacrifice of Christ, by the imputation of Christ's righteousness by faith, the guilty sinner is declared not guilty before God. And what happens is the record of sin that's in that man's life, that person's life, that entire record is expunged. It's all wiped away as if there was never a sin that was committed. And that's because all of those sins are transferred to Jesus Christ when we place our faith in Him. So God's wrath against the sinner is taken away. There's no longer any reason because there is no record of transgression. And both of these aspects are, are, uh, of salvation are expressed in two theological terms. These are the terms propitiation and expiation. And I want to explain those to you because I just don't want to throw them out there and leave them and not say anything. You need to know theological terms. This helps you to understand the Bible better. So what do these things mean? Well, propitiation means the appeasement of God's wrath. It means satisfaction of God's wrath. And then expiation, that is the removal of man's guilt. The Bible illustrates both aspects of this in Old Testament sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. On that day, there were two goats that were taken. One goat was killed for sacrifice. The Bible says that blood must be shed. And so one goat was killed And that goat was a sin offering. And that symbolized Christ's death for sin. And then the sins of the people were confessed on the head of another goat. And that goat was taken far out into the wilderness and was set free. And that sacrificial goat stood for propitiation. That is for the appeasement of God's wrath. There was the suffering and the death that compared to Christ. But that other goat is set free to show expiation that the guilt of sin has been taken away. And that's what Christ did at the cross. He satisfied God's wrath and he took away our punishment by taking away our guilt. Now one of the greatest problems for people that are in hell is there's no way for their guilt to be taken away. It can't be removed. There's only one way that guilt can be removed and they rejected that. They rejected Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. They didn't obey the gospel of Christ. And their punishment will never take away their guilt. And then further, sin arises from the sinful nature. Man's will is set against God. And if the will is not changed, he continues in disobedience against God. And so if a person doesn't repent in this life, he will never repent in hell because the sinful nature prevents it. Christ said we must be born again. We must be born again. And that's when we're enabled to repent and place our faith in Christ. A notable theologian, William G.T. Shedd, said, Sin is the suicidal action of the human will. A man is not forced to kill himself, but if he does, he can't bring himself to life again. And a man is not forced to sin, but if he does, he can't get back where he was before sinning. In hell, sin is perpetuated forever. Man's rebellion and hatred for God because of punishment can only intensify. And so what you have is perpetual punishment 
because of perpetual sin. It can't end. As one author said, sin is the only perpetual motion which has yet to be found out and needs nothing but a beginning to keep it incessantly going on. And the Bible illustrates that as well. If you look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, you'll not find one word of repentance from the rich man. The Bible says in hell he lifted up his eyes and he was in torment, but he never asked for forgiveness. And he never said, I repent of my sins. He never said, I trust in Jesus Christ. I know what I did wrong. I want to change. I want out of here. He never said, I believe in Jesus Christ. I receive the gospel of Christ. In fact, in his request for mercy, for one drop of water to cool his tongue, that was defiance of God. Because he was saying that I'm still in rebellion. My suffering should be eased. And he didn't admit that God was just and right in punishing in him. So imagine in hell there's no will to change, there's no ability to repent, there's no desire to serve God, and then heaped on it is continuous, unbearable suffering. What do you think that does to the attitude of a person in hell? It only hardens him more against God. And so in hell, people keep on sinning, they never stop. It is, as the author says, a perpetual motion machine. The engine runs and runs and runs and runs because the fuel never runs out. Sin feeds on punishment and punishment feeds on sin. Now question number four. Are all people in hell treated the same? Are all people in hell treated the same? Well, uh, first, my first reaction to that is I would be in big, big trouble if the penalty for speeding was the same as murder. Uh, that wouldn't exactly be justice. But this is a question that's asked because some say, now, now, wait just a minute. Maybe I don't believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm really not all that bad. So will I be punished the same as a murderer? And that sounds like a good question. I suppose in some ways it is. But it's asked as if there is such a thing as light punishment in hell. Maybe some will get a TV in their cell because uh, they aren't violent criminals. But I would say to that, there is no fun in hell. There is no ease in hell. Hell is worse than anyone can imagine. But yet it's still true. There are some that are punished worse than others. The condemned are not given one uniform punishment. Hell is not one large cauldron where every person burns alike. But the punishment of the wicked is according to their works. Now the Bible doesn't tell us enough about this to, for us to understand how God does this, but the scripture teaches it so. It seems that what God does is he, he remakes the body, he fashions it, he fits it for different degrees of punishment. So that some have the capacity to suffer more than others. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus instructed the apostles before their first missionary journey. And he spoke of how the gospel would be received. And he said, you're going to go to some places where people will hear what you have to say. They'll welcome you. They'll, they'll want to hear the gospel of Christ. They'll invite you in. But he said, there are others who won't hear. They'll be very hostile to the gospel. And incidentally, when the apostles went out and preached, they didn't talk about how great everybody was and how nobody really needed salvation. No, they preached about condemnation. They preached about sin. They preached about hell. Jesus said, when you go into a house 
or a city that is hostile against the message, let your peace return to you. Now, this is what he says in Matthew 10, in verse number 13. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It shall be more tolerable. That's what Jesus said. And that is a statement of proportional punishment. Now throughout the scriptures... Sodom and Gomorrah stand for the wickedest crimes that people can commit. Whether a prophet or the apostles or whenever they wanted to pull out the lowest standard that humans could live to, the grossest sin that people could commit, the example of Sodom and Gomorrah is given. Now just to give you a sampling, Isaiah wrote, For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance does witness against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Isaiah used that example. Jeremiah used this example. Ezekiel used the example. Amos used it. Zechariah used it. All of these prophets referred to the terrible sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in the New Testament, it's the same. Jesus used it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Peter used it. So did Jude. Listen to this comment in Jude. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of that great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me stop there for just a minute. Who's he talking about here? Evil angels who left their habitation, evil angels that were in the rebellion with Satan himself. He said their sins are like Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, that sexual perversion, and going after strange flesh, sexual perversion, are set forth as an example. Suffering what? The vengeance of eternal fire. There's no doubt about the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And anybody today who thinks those types of sin are acceptable, they are tolerable, had better get a grip on what God thinks. But we see there's still worse sin. Because according to Jesus, hearing the gospel and rejecting the message and the messenger is worse than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now once again in our text, those who don't obey the gospel of Christ will be punished with everlasting destruction. There are many people who pass through the doors of this church. They hear the gospel and those same people go out without believing. And the scripture says, judgment will be far worse for them. Their punishment will be worse because there are degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus also talked about Tyre and Sidon. These were two wicked Gentile cities. He was preaching in the towns of Galilee. He was healing people and casting out demons. He did that in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. But the people wouldn't believe. And Jesus said, these 
Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, they will fare better in judgment than the cities in Galilee. And in that same passage of Matthew 11, Tyre and Sidon hadn't heard the gospel, but those in Galilee did, and many rejected. See, it's very serious to reject the gospel. Punishment in hell will be far worse for people that hear it and reject it than it will be for the animist on the backside of nowhere that never heard of Christ. But we also need to understand this, that this doesn't mean that those who don't hear the gospel won't be in hell. And it doesn't mean these so-called moral, good people, they're unbelievers. It doesn't mean they won't suffer. All are guilty of sin, but the degree of sin and the degree of punishment is different. It's still eternal punishment, and it's not just a little uncomfortable, but tolerable. Oh, God prepares the bodies of unbelievers for everlasting destruction. That's according to the sentence of their punishment. This is a body that's made so that fire doesn't consume it, and the pain is indescribably excruciating. Now, in Luke 12, Jesus taught that those who know more have greater responsibility. He said some will receive few stripes, fewer than others, but he doesn't say that any unbeliever of any sort will escape the punishment of hell. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, back in Romans 9, remember there it said that God endured the long suffering of people he fitted for destruction. In the second chapter, he wrote, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. According to his deeds. That is proportional punishment. Revelation 20.13 says that at the great white throne judgment, the lost will be judged according to their works. And if you read that passage, do you know what the results are? Whether the great or the small, whether we're talking murderers or soccer moms that don't believe, the result is they're cast into the lake of fire. Now let me give you one more scripture that teaches degrees of punishment. Take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We've looked at this passage several times in the past few weeks, and we've talked about other issues concerning it, but I want to show you here that it also teaches degrees of punishment. In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10 verse 26, last time I, I remind you, it comes right after the command to go to church. Don't stay away from church, so you might pay attention to that, underline that part. Hebrews 10 verse number 26, for if we sin willfully... After that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now, that part of it is simply telling us that if you turn away from Jesus Christ when you have received the truth, you needn't look for anything else. There is nothing else that will deliver you from this wrath that's coming. Only Jesus Christ can. Verse 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment, that is worse punishment, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing 
and have done despite under the spirit of grace. Verse 29, of how much sorer punishment. To hear the gospel and reject it is the worst of all possible scenarios. Hell is hotter for those that reject the gospel. The degrees, the Bible teaches degrees of punishment in hell. Well, now we finish with this fifth question. Question number five. What is hell like? What is hell like? My first answer is, it's as hot as hell. People ignorantly use that expression, and they have no idea what they're comparing. Jesus did. I wish I had had time for all the background information on the usage of the word hell in the scriptures, but I don't. But just briefly, when Jesus used the word, most often he used the Greek word Gehenna. And that was a reference to the garbage dump of Jerusalem, a place where fires burned continually to consume the garbage of the city. Now that place was the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place that in the days before the captivities when Israel was in idolatry, that the wicked kings of, of Israel, of Judah and so forth, they would, they would sacrifice their children to heathen gods. This was done in the Valley of Hinnom. So it was a place of torturous death and there was always burning, fi- burning fires in the Valley of Hinnom. Well, in Jesus' time, the Jews would never think of worshiping idols. And to show their contempt for this awful place, this former holy place of heathens, they made it the garbage dump. They threw in all the filth of the city, all the sewage ran into that place. The fires were always burning to consume the garbage. And so Jesus used that as an example of hell where the fire never goes out. Now, he had a very interesting way of putting it. If you'll turn to Mark chapter 9, if we look at this, we'll see how bad, how bad is hell according to Jesus. Well, Jesus said, if there is some part of your body that you use to sin, it'd be better for you to cut it off right now. Cut it off right now. Do that rather than let it increase your suffering in hell. Now, this is especially appropriate when much of our sin today is done with electronic devices, things that let you see every wicked thing imaginable. Pay attention to what Jesus says about your eyes and what you see. But in Mark 9, verse number 42, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than to having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It's better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not. And the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. I don't want to get too graphic with you, but if there's any other part of your body that leads you into hell, better cut it off than to take it, cause it to let you suffer more in hell fire. Now, let me have you think about this again. Who said this? (laughs) Who's speaking here? 
Jesus. Jesus taught hell. And he said God's going to send people there. And didn't Jesus also say, I am God? So who sends people to hell? Jesus Christ. When did you hear that last in the pulpit? Jesus sends people to hell? Yes, he does, according to him. And the reference here to the worm that doesn't die, that's to maggots that crawled over the garbage with an endless supply of food. The maggots were there day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. And the worm that does not die in hell is the sinner that's in constant agony. Now the message that Jesus tried to get across here and did get across is that hell is an eternal place. The activity of hell never stops. The punishment never stops and the fire never goes out. The indestructible souls and bodies of people provide continual fire for burning. He goes on and on forever. The last part of verse 48 says the fire is not quenched. You couldn't get a clearer, more unequivocal statement of the length of punishment than this. So here is Jesus as he taught his disciples and the people standing before his own flannel graph, casting his eyes over to the valley of Hinnom and the fires that never go out. And that's what he used to illustrate his point. In that unquenchable fire, there's the terrible torment of pain and suffering. It's intense pain like no one has experienced. It's relentless And there will be crying, there is wailing, there is continual wailing because of the pain, and it says there is gnashing of teeth. Now some some have described the constant grinding, gnashing of teeth as an expression of anger. When Stephen preached, they were so angry at his convicting sermon, they couldn't stand it. So they stood there and they grit their teeth, they were ready to pounce on him, and in just a few seconds they were hurling stones And beating the life out of him. Why? He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In hell there will be rage. Rage because of God. Rage because of the deceitfulness of Satan who promised there is no hell. There is no retribution. He encouraged them to live it up. Do whatever you want. Don't listen to preachers. Don't go to church. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You live your life. You do your own thing. And imagine that rage when those thoughts come streaming back, eternally streaming back, eternal thoughts, unending thoughts, and there's no escape from it. Sorrow, remorse, wasted opportunities, and so much warning, and yet so much stubbornness has landed them in hell where their worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Imagine their rage against preachers who smiled, And told them how great they were, how awesome they were, how much potential they had. And it's all about you. Imagine their rage because the preacher wouldn't tell them about sin and hell and warn them of this awful place. Still another thought, what is hell like? Hell is a place of darkness. Matthew 23, 13. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. Jude speaks of the sins of false prophets. He says they are reserved for blackness and darkness forever. You know, that's, that's those preachers who won't tell you about hell. The ones that smile at you and say, you don't really need to worry about that because God is such a God of love. God is not a God of wrath. No, that's the false prophet who's reserved for blackness and darkness 
forever. I've heard a lot of preaching and opinions about the darkness of hell. Some say that you'll be conscious of those that are around you, but there is no company in hell because of this darkness. People wail and scream. They, they can hear the screams of others. And if they could get their hands on that preacher, they would. They can't see him, so they can't. But darkness makes them really concentrate only and always forever on their hopelessness. And that's the last aspect of hell that I'll tell you what it's like. It's the feeling of despair. Alexander Pope wrote, Hope springs eternal in the human breast. It's a nice thought, but it's not biblical. Hope is not eternal. might even surprise you there's no hope in heaven. You know why? Because hope is turned into realization. Paul wrote, For we are saved by hope. Romans 8, 24, We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. But what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? We don't need hope in heaven because we'll see everything that God promised. We will possess it. We have everything that we hope for. So hope is applied to this life, not to eternity. And that is equally true that there is no hope in hell. There's nothing but despair. If it was possible to get out, if you could suffer enough to get out of hell, if you could pay enough, your relatives could pay enough to get you out of hell, there would be hope. But there is no hope because there is no replace or release from that awful place. Hell is a place of eternal despair. Dante said it better in Paradise Lost, said, said it better than Alexander Pope. He wrote that there is a placard over the opening of hell. These are the words. All hope abandon ye who enter here. If you're not saved, if you're not saved, I beg you, not to leave here without trusting Christ. Abandon all hope if you're not a believer. If you don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. If it was just me who told you that, I'd say, don't believe it. No, I'm all mixed up. Everybody else is right. When they talk about the love of God and God never sends anybody to hell, they're all right, I'm wrong. And I'd say, don't believe me, but what have I done? I've read to you the scriptures. I've read to you what God says. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, Peter, Paul, James, John, Jude, and especially the Lord Jesus Christ warn you of this place. It's righteous for God to punish those who don't believe. I would say, may God have mercy on your soul, but I know that he won't. The Bible says that he will not. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in soberness and sincerity, thinking about what you've just taught us in your word. Lord, we I do that you have changed the hearts of the people that are here. They are believers in Jesus Christ and not just believers, but faithful, obedient believers, searching for holiness and righteousness in their lives and doing what we spoke of earlier, and that is warning people about this awful place that is called hell. How could we sit down beside someone that we work with and do it day after day after day, someone that we eat lunch with, someone who is a friend, someone who may even be family, and never mention 
this place that is called hell and not be concerned about their souls. Lord, maybe we only get to do that one time and they shut us off, they turn us off and say they don't want to talk about it anymore. Maybe we do have to stop there, but we have fulfilled the responsibility to let people know there is an awful place that is called hell. Help us to preach that. Help us not to be ashamed of it. It's in the Bible. We're not to be ashamed of anything the Word of God says, but we're to teach it and reprove people, rebuke them for their unbelief. Encourage them to trust Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we do pray for either saved or lost that's here today that a proper application of this message will be made. It's good for both sides, for the lost and for the saved, to know about this awful place that is called hell. Speak to someone's heart today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.